Today's guest is someone that's become a friend over the past few years, and that's David Gray. David last visited us back in February of 2022, season three, episode two to be specific, where we discussed feet out during running, the merits of sensory motor training, and the hilariousness of dachshunds, or as David calls them, sausage dogs. Hopefully you started following David thereafter, because he has simply blown up since then. Numerous product launches, delivering seminars, and growing his Instagram following to a staggering 135,000 as of this recording. If you've consumed any of his content, you hopefully understand why. For my money, there's no one currently in our industry doing a better job of breaking down posture, gait, respiration, and movement in a way that's possible to understand without becoming derivative or algorithmic. He's a thought leader in our field, which is why I was stoked to get him on to discuss various topics, such as the utility or lack thereof of movement KPIs, negative transfer of barbell training, leading versus lagging measures of pain and performance, his work with an Olympic endurance athlete, biomechanical determinism, and much, much more. If you like some of what David has to say, I can personally recommend Lower Body Basics and his DGR interactive platform, which I've utilized as both an athlete and practitioner. Without further ado, here's the Irish Wonder Boy. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. I am here with the one, the only, David Gray, the Wonder Boy, Irish Wonder Boy. Is that what you're, is that what you're called these days? No. <laughs> Two people now, three people now have called me that. So yeah, we, we, just, uh, we, we just reject that one from the start. <laughs> How's it going, man? I'm good, Tim. How are you? I am doing well. Happy to be talking to you. Yeah. Uh, what time is it there? Where, where are you now? Actually, I'm in. I'm still in Denver, uh, and it is seven ten in the AM. I assume it's two days in the future by you. It is probably five or six hours in the future. Yeah, that, that seems two PM. Reasonable. Yeah, but you yeah. you could still watch your news and tell me which lottery tickets are going to pop. <laughs> yeah, but the Irish lottery is depends on the lottery. Yeah, Irish lottery is like not making you rich. <laughs> it's like <laughs> just gives you enough money to be obnoxious for a few years and then lose it again probably that's that seems to be what usually happens yeah i think that's the trend with the american lottery too even though the, uh, the sums <laughs> of money are quite vast yeah. yeah uh before we get into anything real uh most important question how is the sausage dog if we don't have a sausage dog i thought you did i thought no. you had a weird dog don't you have a dachshund uh roxy is Roxy have a not? dog? No, is Roxy's Roxy not a sausage dog. There's no sausageness to her. Come here. Well, uh, please don't tell her that I misattributed her. She's listening. She's right now. No, she's a cockalier. <laughs> she's a mix of a cocker spaniel and a cavalier. So no, she's. I do like sausage dogs, but she's much more athletic. I, I mean, that's my one of my favorite uh, Irishisms is calling dogs and sausage dogs. That's. <laughs> um, no, she's not. She's not. She's doing well, though. So, but she's very good. Yeah, she's excellent. That's good. She just got a. We were. I was away there. She just got a groom, and um, in a new groomer's place. So she got a full groom. She got her teeth like brushed. She got her asshole cleaned out. She got her ears done. Everything. So she's now cleaner than I have ever been. So <laughs> she's she's looking good. There probably needs to be a human version of that available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, human like car wash. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. So uh, we chatted a little bit before I pressed record on this bad boy, but the overall topic of season three of More Train, Less Pain is learning to train a little bit more effectively within the confines of chronic or persistent pain. I I wanted to have you on because in my mind, you're one of the preeminent minds when it comes to getting people moving better and getting people out of uh, out of pain in an absolute sense, but also out of pain in in a relative sense, like out of pain that is debilitating and maybe more into pain that just like ends up being more of a, of a nag or a nuisance. But 
I thought we could start with a little bit of your personal history, because I know that your struggles with some knee issues are, you know, ultimately what kind of led you into this field. And we may or may not have talked about that back season one, season two, but um, wondering if you could speak to kind of, you know, the end of your athletic journey, kind of the start of the knee stuff and that, 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 uh, you know, meandering path that kind of led you to, to where you are today. Yeah. So I've had an interesting relationship with pain and yeah, it kind of started I probably, yeah, with my patellar tendon. Um, and I had a, like an eight year journey with that where I was in a lot of pain and still trying to play pretty high level sport um, or as high as I could play and get to. And I do feel like I, I still feel like that robbed me of my glory years let's say athletically uh whatever they were going to be just personally for me i felt like i was improving rapidly i kind of like figured out ways to improve uh both skills and athletically and this kind of robbed me of a lot of that and I, so i still have regrets around that which is an interesting thing to try and deal with um and yeah it was just just a lot of pain a lot of ways that that affected my life but still just more so frustrations in terms of I can't play my sport not like yeah it kind of was affecting every single every single part of my life it definitely was but I also didn't care about that I just wanted to play sport so that was fine um and yeah I've had kind of on and off pain ever since then in my body but more so much more so I haven't really been in pain at all for the last few years and um more so just like tension there's there's been times where there's been a lot of tension in my body where i definitely definitely wouldn't describe it as pain but like i feel like i'm trapped like i'm a five foot nine inch man caught in a or i'm a six foot man caught in like a five foot nine inch body it's just like compression it's squeezing me and that's an interesting thing that doesn't get spoken about. Just like, I'm not in pain, but I also feel like shit. That is a very interesting thing that no one speaks about. That's something that pain science also doesn't speak about. You know where, like, let's say they'll do studies, not just pain science, but injuries. Let's say I'll take CrossFit for an example, and I'm a fan of CrossFit, but they'll take studies like, okay, the injury rates in CrossFit are lower than the injury rates in nfl or something like this like some random comparison and then they'll say well crossfit is super safe blah 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 blah. but why would people get injured doing something like that like i don't expect them to see i don't expect to see a lot of injuries i don't even expect to see a lot of pain but if you ask a lot of crossfit people for example they will a lot of them will tell you i feel like absolute dog shit all the time and you'll ask them do you have knee pain do you have whatever pain no but I feel like shit. So this kind of feeling like shit thing isn't studied. And I've spent some time there. And that's that's been an interesting one, which is I wouldn't describe as pain anymore. It, yeah, it's this interesting, uh, this uh, kind of false dichotomy of injured versus not injured is also one that's incredibly interesting to me. Because um, like similar to you, I, I sort of feel like, you know, with... Like I picked great parents for having great genetics for running really fast or running for a long time, but I picked terrible parents for uh, having a, a hip structure and you know pelvic orientation that that would support that. Um, so it kind of robbed in some sense, but um, you know the the sport of track and field, like endurance athletics in general, it's like you pretty much always have something going on. Um, you can go as early as back, like once a runner was written in like the seventies and it talks about the old, like injury evasion Fandango. It's like this, this is a known phenomenon where if you're pursuing something that has a high chronic workload, it's like something is always going to feel a little off or a little tense. And the point at which that becomes an actual injury, at least in activities like running, like CrossFit, it's sort of arbitrary. Like it's not an ACL tear. It's not a disc rupture. It's nothing that's incredibly dramatic, but it's just this gradual creep of like, okay, now that tension is making it so that, you know, my first 500 steps of the day when I get up out of bed in the morning don't feel so good. And I, I'm, I'm completely with you there. It's like, 
you look, you need to look at the area under the curve with how people feel over long time horizons, not just like, do they have an ACL tear or do they not have an ACL tear? hundred percent. Yeah. That's such a weird thing to me. It's that's such a weird thing that pain science just kind of seems to ignore completely is okay. You're not in pain. You're also not injured, but would you like to feel better? Because like, I think that's where biomechanics can come in as well. It's like, yeah, you can, you you can get through your daily tasks, but potentially you could feel better than you're feeling. So like, maybe we can, because it's kind of almost, I won't say pain science. I'm wrong saying pain science. It's like the interpretation of pain science, which is like, nothing matters anymore. If you're not injured, just go and live whatever the hell you want in whatever way, do whatever you want. Uh, no thought process around form or anything like that. But like feeling like shit isn't studied. That that potentially because I still think, yeah, you can lift whatever the hell way you want. Lift like shit. Absolutely go and do it. But ask someone, would you like to feel like shit or not? And and potentially then we we will tweak some things about how you move. So yeah, that's just something that feeling like shit isn't spoken about. And that's not pain, uh, yeah. that's not injury. And this is this is an area where, and I wasn't expecting to go in this particular direction, but I, I think it's interesting. This is something where I give a lot of credit to um, like you and Bill Hartman in trying to put a little bit more of a voice to some of the negative secondary consequences of pursuing strength training. Even like uh, Joel Smith at Just Fly, it's like, I, I feel like the first time I even heard anybody talking about anything like that was like five or six years ago. Um, and this, this notion of like, it, it sounds like stronger should just be better. It sounds like if you improve your back squat, well, that should just sort of be the tide that, that lifts all boats. But, um, you know, I think that the more and more we, we pursue that, it's like the more we come to this realization that in the pursuit of that, uh, even if we're successful, it's like, we might end up stealing something that we need to walk comfortably or change direction or, you know, just function day to day with less symptoms, to your point, less tension. Yeah, negative transfer of training is a big thing that I think about a lot. And we, smart people, intelligent people think about negative transfer. I bet you back in in high school, you were, you, you spoke, or, or you were spoken you were your teacher spoke about opportunity cost right so like if you spend this one dollar on an apple you can't spend it on something else so there's an opportunity cost right okay i'm using some of my energy and my yeah my energy for the week on strength training let's say so that means i can't use it on something else but it's not just an opportunity cost. There's also a potential negative transfer, which is, okay, not only like are you spending your $1 on a chocolate bar instead of an apple, and now you can't get the apple and get the nutrients from the apple. You're also getting the potential negatives from eating the chocolate bar. So opportunity costs coaches do understand, but there seems to be a head in the stand around negative transfer. Not like strength training is spoken about with regards to like okay i have a group here some of the coaches will acknowledge okay some of these people will get really good improvements in x y and z areas some of them will get okay improvements and some of them might not really get any improvements they never speak about okay but like there's also this group that will feel like really shit as a result of your training that that group is never spoken about that negative transfer is never spoken about and it's like it's such a weird thing to me because every action has is going to have a reaction so there's no single thing in the world that you can do that's just purely positive 100 positive and there's no potential negatives i'm not saying everything has a negative but a potential negative everything does so why wouldn't strength training and it has a potential negative and people i think just coaches it, it suits them to ignore it which is frustrating to me and that's not just i don't mean that with pain of course there's a potential chance of injuring someone of course there's a potential chance of stealing mobility of course there's a potential chance of just doing the wrong stuff but there's also a potential chance of like okay you're actually making people worse at these movements that they want to get better at but that is definitely not considered 
Yeah, I, I agree. And in, uh, it's funny, in, like within strength conditioning, as it pertains to like distance runners, track and field, it's like, we always talk about the initial bump. Like if you take a runner that isn't doing any weight room work and you, and you get them to do some weight room work, almost all of them get better. And then it's like, because they get better, and this happened to me in high school, it's like, because I got faster, because I learned how to like squat and clean and do some lunges, I thought that that would have an infinite path to progression. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people fail to realize that like past a certain point, the trend line can go in the exact opposite direction. Um, and, and really, I mean, it's like the more potent the stimulus, probably the more potent the negative transfer or like undesirable secondary consequence. And I think like, you know, really fast running, running large volumes, lifting heavy things like these are very potent physiologic and neurologic stimuli. 100%. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Exactly that. Because the thing that makes it great is that it has a potent stimulus. It's like heavy lifts and stuff like that. That's what makes it great. You can you can almost force the body to change because there's a there's a strong stimulus. So like don't presume that it's going to change positively. <laughs> it it doesn't, yeah. you know. It will change, but it doesn't always mean it's going to change in the way that you want it to change. I think about I, I recently listened to an interview with Peter Atia, and if you if you go back and like listen to some of the stuff from five, six, seven years ago, he was all about like fasting, and it would be like you know like every week he would do like a twelve hour fast, every month it would be like a three day fast, and uh, I think the one I listened to was on like Sam Harris, which was from like six months ago or something, but that was the one thing that uh, he unabashedly just kind of like walked back. He's like, I I was completely wrong, and even though theoretically fasting should do all of these wonderful things with like autophagy, um, maybe preventing cancer down the road. I was just losing massive amounts of muscle mass every time I would do these, these long fasts. So it's like, and that, again, it's like, that is not a training thing, but that like, like not eating food, abstaining from eating is a very potent physiologic stimulus to think that that would just be a free lunch, so to speak. Free lunch. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. 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 That. Exactly. That. And what the what the what a what changed his mind wasn't like wasn't oh, okay i i just did one more fast and now i realized something what changed his mind was long term effects cuz short term i can feel great but the more i do of this yeah the more potential now because the more potential negatives I've I've potentially run out of positives or I'm keep get, keep getting the same positives but actually my body is starting to adapt adapt in a negative way. So like if he ran that one fast a year for 10 years he would probably keep coming on his podcast and saying the benefits are amazing. I have more clarity, I feel better, I feel more healthier blah 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 whatever he was saying. But the more he did of that, the more he realized actually like yeah, I'm just eating less food now. So my body is adapting in that way. So yeah, you have to think long-term with this stuff too. I think this this sort of dovetails into a topic that um, was on the original docket, but like, let's let's take the case of uh, like a CrossFitter, like someone that you know is going to be doing a lot of training that might have uh, some, some degree of negative transfer to their movement profile, other than asking them like, hey, how do you feel? And, and maybe observing like grossly, how do you move? Do you think about any kind of concrete like KPIs insofar as sort of like tracking movement longitudinally as they're changing their training? I'm thinking like in, in toe touch, hip internal rotation. Like, is, is that something that's part of the roadmap when you're trying to guide these people? Only if they care about it, um, to be honest. Like if they're a CrossFitter and they want to get better at CrossFit, then just off you go to me really that's like it's just about choices but uh, i will if they're asking my opinion on things then i will i will say okay training potentially training in this way here's how you're going to improve and here's the potential negatives like do you care if you lose a few degrees of rotation do you care if you kind of feel a little bit crap and a little bit tight a lot of the time a lot of the time, the answer would be no. I couldn't give a shit. When you were asking me when I was playing football, like, does this matter to you? Nah, I just want to be better at playing football. So, like, I will measure that stuff if I like personally. I think it's important because if you if you multiply that over a long enough time horizon, 
does it matter that you've lose you're losing a few degrees of motion here and there no but if you keep losing a few degrees of motion at your hips every year multiplied by 20 years now you're potentially looking at a hip replacement so like long enough time horizon yes but people don't usually train with that in mind and they're probably right to not train with that in mind because you're you're thinking about something that might happen a long time in the future but when it's someone's career i think that's more it sounds counterintuitive but like because even more so maybe they shouldn't care about what happens in the future but yeah i get to work with some like very very good sprinters elite sprinters elite different athletes from different sports it doesn't like an extra one extra year of doing their sport could be worth millions of dollars to them and that um it's a balancing act between like milking out as much performance as i can right now but also having that little bit of longevity and that i think athletes are starting to come around to that thought process you'll see it in their recovery in different ways and in their training in different ways and yeah there's a lot of athletes that will just absolutely hammer their bodies and can't do it anymore and they probably would have been fine just if they added in a few little things here and there along the way or took away a few things here and there yeah and i think that's where this stuff kind of gets interesting and this is where i go back to like the like kind of like the kpi framework which is so like let's say let's have a thought experiment where you have like five to 15 years of working with an athlete and you have a hand in there starting the conditioning program design, all their mobility work, like you, you can kind of, you know, manipulate all the variables. It's like there, there has to be some strategy other than, Hey, do you feel tight today to sort of drive a decision-making framework of like, am I going to trap our deadlift this person? Or is this going to be like 20 minutes easy on a bike? Yeah. So I have a client actually. So I have a I have a client that I've been working with now who's hopefully going to be an Olympian and I have been working with her for on and off for close to four years, probably. And this is a race walker. Yeah. So yeah. and more so probably on and off for the first 18 months and then more so more on than off for the last 18 months pretty pretty consistently and even when she's not with me she's training in the way that i want her to train for the most part or the way that we have agreed that we will train for the most part and so yes so when we started she had proximal hamstring tendinopathy on both sides she had some shin splint kind of symptoms at least on her left shin she had some osteitis pubis or whatever they're calling that now actually quite nasty some pelvic floor problems um and mostly just couldn't like do her sport anymore. So her training, my number one KPI for her, she had, I will say, close to 90 degrees of hip internal rotation on her left hip. And I would say maybe minus five or minus 10 degrees of hip external rotation on her left hip. Now we're at the stage where she has probably like, I don't know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees of left hip IR. So it's reduced by about 30 degrees, which is so reducing her hip IR has been a big KPI. And now we have probably 10 or 15 degrees of of external rotation on that side. So when we when we kind of really got started properly into training, no, she couldn't really do her sports. She was in pain a lot of the time, pretty stressed out about it. Then, you know, yourself, it's a vicious, gets a vicious cycle. And there wasn't a surgeon in Europe that would do the surgery that she, they thought she might need on her left hip. So we kind of had no choice. And I know this is a question that was, uh, quickly looked at the docket that you were saying. And it's kind of a question around like, okay, if you know, you're not going to be out of pain, you are like, there's a good chance you are always going to struggle a bit with this, which in this case, like she's probably always going to struggle with this hip. Like, what do we do? And I get that question almost on a daily basis on Instagram as well. I have some kind of arthritis here, or I have some kind of fusion. This toe is fused. What should I do? And I'm like, should I get surgery? Should I not train at all? And my answer is always like, I, I can almost guarantee you it can be a lot better than it is now. I can't tell the future and say exactly where we're going to end up, but I know it can be better. So let's 
just do the things that I know we should do right now and just keep moving forward and not try and predict exactly what point it's going to stop at. Let's just have some respect for the body and see see what happens. So that's all we've done for a couple of years with Kate. And in that instance, I have context around her KPIs. If I'm doing things and her hip ER reduces and her hip IR increases, I know I'm going the wrong direction. 100%. Not even, a, it's not even any, co- some coach could walk in and SNC coach could walk in and look at our session and saying like, why you should be doing X, Y, and Z. And like, they literally could not even, I wouldn't even have that conversation with them. Like you do not understand the context of this situation. You will 100% make her worse if you train the way you want to train her. So because we've seen it, it's a case study over several years and now we're trending in the right direction. So absolutely, that is a key KPI. I just don't think that everyone, her toe touch is another one. Um, her squat is another one. And not all, some, some, but again, remember, I'm not just saying more mobility. I'm saying actually her hip IR, we need to decrease. So like, we're measuring things, but not all athletes need to decrease. I have another I need to increase range of motion. I have another client at the moment, a runner, and it's more of a motor control thing. I think he has tons of mobility, but I see just such a lack of pretension and co-contraction around his hip, around his ankles. And he has like a lot of hip drop and this heel flick and stuff like that. So that's more of a visual KPI that I'm working on with him over it's going to take time of course but he's been injured for years and years now basically picking up hamstring and calf injuries as a footballer um and like so his kpi is like how do you run because you keep getting injured running so that's his kpi and it's how does mostly like it's mostly to me how is how does it look are we improving in the direction because i have an ideal technical model in my mind it doesn't mean you're ever going to get there but i i'm pretty sure that if i nudge you in that direction you're going to be a bit better so i know that was all over the place but hopefully that's some somewhat makes sense no no i think i think that's incredibly useful i you know i because it's like there's there's a bucket of people that pick up i would say this is the majority of people most people pick up some injuries um and there's there's pretty much an 100 percent fix with like you know either thing one thing two thing three thing four that they try um, for that bucket of people, I think I'm entirely with you where it's like, let's not go down the KPI movement retest rabbit hole unless we need to, because that probably breeds some degree of, I don't know, anxiety, like hyper focusing on fairly granular ranges of motion. But then I think we have to also be realistic that there's there's people like Kate, there's people like me for whom being pain free probably won't ever happen unless we stop all activities, which also won't ever happen. So then it's just kind of like, okay, uh, let's let's have some operating framework whereby we can sort of course correct. Because in my mind, like these, ultimately uh, hip range of motion, shoulder range of motion, is a, it's a proxy test for the system. Like it's a proxy test for movement in general. It's not just like the hip rotating or the shoulder rotating. And I think used as a proxy in that in that manner, like James Clear talks a lot about like leading measures versus lagging measures. And in my mind, like for Kate, what you just described, it's like if if her left hip IR begins to remagnify or she starts to, you know, lose left hip ER, it's like that to me would be a leading measure of her propensity to feel more pain or 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 get a little bit more injured. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And that is the case. Uh, it will oscillate a little bit. And um, it will, her IR will increase on that side a little bit as she gets into a very competitive se- part of the season. So like the thing that did this to her body, her body adapted in a way that it was, she was asking it to. And the thing, it was, it was, walking in in that way so that's what did it so the more she gets into a super competitive part of the season the more that that changes a little bit but the 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 kind of the kind of chatter online now again is coming from a lot of the interpretation of pain science i don't want to say pain science it's poor interpretation and it's it's almost like if you're measuring anything you're noceboing your client 
It's such a wild thing to even... This season of More Train, Less Pain is brought to you by my remote fitness programming service. We've been talking a lot about navigating the minefield that is attempting to train and improve fitness while dealing with persistent pain. If you feel like this directly applies to you, it can be daunting to attempt to construct your own workouts and long-term programs. Personally, one of the best decisions I ever made was to outsource that process and hire a coach. Someone who's external to the day-to-day reality of being in my body and my brain that can take my preferences, feedback, and athletic goals and coalesce them into a stable, doable fitness program that I could execute. It's an honor to serve in that role for my clients and my athletes. Stop banging your head against a proverbial wall and spinning your wheels changing workouts every week. Start investing in a long-term process to discover what your body is capable of and the long-term progress that you can make. Reach out via the contact tab on timrichart.com to learn more. Now, back to the show. Like, to even even think that, that that's, that's because there's so many shit people, on uh, physios and trainers and stuff that are nocebo-ing their clients, it means that everyone must be if you're measuring anything. It's wild to me. So, like, it's actually the exact opposite for someone like me and Kate. We just have a conversation around, like, it's very likely you're going to wake up after these races and feel like shit. That's not me no no seeming her. That's actually me helping her understand that this is okay because okay, I can I can yeah, exactly. It gives her a feeling of like, yeah, I kind of expect this and I know some of those people that interpret pain science poorly will say, no, you're actually making this happen by saying that. I'm fucking not. It's happened for 10 years now. I'm just saying, okay, you're going to wake up. Anyone who's ever played sport, these people have never played sport. You're going to wake up sore. Okay. You're going to wake up sore, but we don't want you to be sore for the full week. So like, it's a good idea that we actually do some little things the next day and have some strategies for when this does actually occur. It's the opposite of nocebo in my mind. It's actually... It's actually like um, if you ever look at sales, you'll see salesy like people talking about objection handling online. You get on a phone call, you're trying to sell something to someone and they'll say, oh, no, I need to talk to my wife about this before I make the decision. And you have like an objection. You handle that objection. You have a little script to handle every objection. That's really sleazy. But when you handle objections with your clients before they crop up, it's actually a confidence builder. It's like, okay. I'm like, if I wake up, I'm going to be very, uh, potentially I'm going to be very sore after this run. And you're having a conversation. If you're sore, here's here's a couple of drills that you can do. Don't panic. It's not about placebo. It's about potentially placebo, but it's about giving them some power, which a lot of people feel like they don't have. Yeah. I think it's also about like realistic expectation, which I think that as, as people that are coaching human beings that have emotions, it's like a really good way to ratchet up a person's anxiety is for them to experience something that was not in their perceived range of outcomes. It's like, you know, if, if every time uh, you converse with Kate, you're like, look, if, if you go walk 25 miles at 12 minute mile or whatever, um, you might not feel great the next day. Uh, to me, that that is incredibly empowering because she was the one that chose to walk 25 miles. She's like, oh, okay, this this is what it does, and now I'm going to work with David to get that back. Wh- while you were speaking, it's you know I, I think this could easily just be a podcast about false dichotomies within the fitness and rehab industries, but it's so interesting to be like wrapped up in this pain science stuff. There's like there's like biomechanical determinism where it's like the only thing that matters is the position of stuff. And then there's like biomechanical nihilism, which is like all that matters is your attitude about movement. And both are absolutely insane. And it's like if you if you troll Instagram, it's like people really want uh, everyone. They, they want me. They want you. They want like, they want everybody to fall cleanly in one of those two camps. And I think like like everything else, it's like, well, yeah, both both camps have valid points. But and this is stealing a direct quote from you. Uh, the most comfortable place to sit is right on the fence. Yeah, because that's where the people who sit in the fence, you can, you know, are actually working with people. Because if you camp yourself in either of those two other camps, you're going to start meeting people where you very, you, if you want to help them, you have to, you have to make your way to the middle. There's no, there's no other option. But the people online that are talking in those ways, either they don't work with people 
or they do work with people, but their online persona is a, is a certain way. I know people like that. I know I know people that work in a certain way in person and then online they say, no, no, biomechanics doesn't matter. Movement doesn't matter. Blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. You, you know, I look at. I look at um, track and field coaches, sp- let's say sprint coaches as a shining example of people who are doing great work, a lot like good ones and have been doing it for years and years and years. And the reason why is they have more than anyone else in the whole kind of fitness performance industry. They have control, a lot of control over the whole person. So they will have a four year training cycle to the next Olympics. So they're thinking short term and long term. I have competitions this year, but in four years time, I need you to be in this certain way. So they have to think on a daily basis and a very long term basis. That's number one. Number two, they have to plan out their training. They have to plan it out day by day by day. Okay, you're not feeling so good. I'm going to have to tweak this, blah, 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 blah. Number three, they can measure improvements very easily. Stopwatch sport. You, you're gonna, you're either getting better or you're not. And the only way to get better is to train and also keep you healthy. So they have to keep that in mind as well. I have to keep this person healthy. Traditionally, they will also do their SNC with them. They will have like they'll basically in control of everything. Okay, so if I'm having you lifting weights in this way and your times aren't improving either in the short term or the long term, then your SNC isn't actually helping us. So like they have such a, a good way to have KPIs to to measure. They also a lot of them will do soft tissue work traditionally. They will be able to like they'll just throw their athlete on the on the table. Now some of them have physios and stuff now, but. Like you look back at Charlie Francis and stuff like that, like they'll they'll have done a little bit of massage, a bit of soft tissue work. So they're thinking on that side of things. They will also potentially um, be involved in their nutrition a lot of the time. And then they'll also be involved in their steroid use a lot of the time. So like they're they're involved in every single aspect of what makes someone perform better whether you like it or not and they are to me they are a shining light of performance because if they 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 will also have like a great relationship with the athlete and they will also be able to use their words very well if you ever come across like a really good sprint coach so they will be they will know when to give the athlete a bit of a kick in the hole they will know when to pick them up build their confidence all this stuff so like those people are in the trenches they have been doing the good the great things that have come out of the biopsychosocial model they've been doing that for 50 years 100 years they've been doing great work this model isn't a new thing we've just figured out how to put a name on it now and they are people that sit in the middle they don't sit they they will talk about biomechanics they will look at movement they will have kpis they will have they will they they realize that everything is important and that's I, i think what works And I would say professionally, the middle is where you end up at when you start to be able to perceive how many facets to the system there are. It's like the the middle is not something that you have to drag yourself to. The middle is just (laughs) something that you're confronted with when enough things aren't working with like, like really early in my career, I was a big PRI guy, like loved to be. And I still like, I, I I think, you know, similar to you, it's like, I, I would not be thinking about inherent asymmetry respiration, the rib cage, the pelvis, like, like all of that stuff was put on my radar because of PRI. But when I got really wrapped up in that system, it's like I completely ignored manual therapy. I completely, like I started to ignore my strength conditioning background. And it's like only in attempting to reintegrate all of those pieces has my clinical model started to make the most sense that it's ever made to me, like in 2023. And I think I've started to get even better outcomes for my people. But it's like the the, the way through that is not like, yeah, it's like it, it doesn't it's not dragging yourself to a middle ground because that also doesn't happen in sport. I mean, it's like I had the same thing happen with my track and field career that you did with your is it Gaelic football. Yeah, yeah. Where, where it's like if someone were to tell me at age 19, hey, dude, you're going to have some hip stuff when you're in your mid 30s. I would have been like, I, I, I don't care. Like I am trying to run a 420 mile right now. I, I don't have time for this. So it's like you you have to be pushed and pulled in these extremes a lot of stuff by a lot of times by life circumstance in order to end up in a useful middle yeah exactly and that's why i do encourage coaches and therapists to people always say don't go down the rabbit hole 
like of PRI or of whatever. And it's coming from a place often of they went down the rabbit hole and now they're back in the middle. But like they learned all this stuff and now they have context of why I am where I am. And now they're actually robbing this younger coach of saying like, no, you don't need to learn that. I learned that and I don't use it that much. But it did frame how you think about things now. So I use like, I use basically nothing that I learned from PRI. I would say close to 0% in terms of practically. And I would have, I would be... I would be if you put me and Ron Oroska in a room together treating a client. I think he's a legend, by the way. But treating a client, I would not only like not use probably what he's using. I would actually argue quite strongly, probably against how he's even using those things. I would like be like, no, that is not doing what you're saying it's doing. Not only like is that not potentially valuable in my mind. This is generalizing, obviously, but it's actually not even doing what you think it's doing. I think it's doing different things. But so let's say I use close to 0% that I learned from there. I still learned a lot of stuff. And the model that I have in my mind now, like that was born out of learning that stuff along the way and from going down the rabbit hole. So I wouldn't discourage people from doing that. There's no problem with being in a rabbit hole. The problem is not being able to see anything else. That is the problem. It's not about going down and learning deep about things. And that's what definitely what I encourage people to do. Yeah. And I think, I mean, look, like strength conditioning, physical therapy uh, tends to attract people that have a certain type of mindset, like a little bit more of like an extreme sensation seeking mindset. So I kind of think like I'm right there with you. It's like go down that rabbit hole um, because that is where motivation wants to take you right now. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm right. Like I know so many people. It's like don't don't do it because I'm I'm here and I don't use any of it. And it's like yeah, but you wouldn't be where you currently are had you not walked that path. In the same way that you or I wouldn't be where we currently are able to help people if we hadn't walked the path of like having a thing hurt for a while. Yeah. The the only other thing that I that kind of came up when you were talking about um, the uh, Cape athlete that you currently manage, and this is less of a question and more of kind of a statement, but. I just think that there, I think one of the biggest disservices that the rehab industry did in the early 2000s, and I, I, I'm hesitant to blame FMS because I think like I, I, Gray Coke, Kyle Keys, like those guys are legends in trying to quantify the movement system. But one of the big things that seemed to come out of that was um, like, stop if there is pain. Like there shouldn't be pain. Pain is not normal. And if there is pain, like red light, get this person to a PT or a Cairo or an orthopod, like we need to intervene. And I think that that is one situation where I I don't think there's a middle ground there. Like, I don't think that pain free ought to be the goal, especially if you've been in pain for a while. Because I think if the expectation similar to uh, with Kate, the expectation, if she walks a marathon, is that she wakes up the next day feeling awesome, and she continually doesn't, in my mind, that is disempowering. That is not empowering. So I think being able to say, hey, you might be in some degree of pain, maybe all the time, but we have a good understanding of what the inputs are to that system. And you do have some semblance of control. Like to me, that is an athlete-centric, patient-centric, human-centric model of how to how to manage this, as opposed to just like, oh yeah, pain's not good. We, we're going to want to fix that. Like, let's put everything on pause until we fix that. Yeah. It's a tricky one because yeah like all them systems back then they were just operating with limited limited knowledge but like we are all so weird when people shit on that stuff it's it's we're, we are where we are because of that and because of all the things that came previous to that and then we just improve this, this is what humans do to just improve things a little bit <laughs> no matter what field you're in you're just tweaking like making things a little bit better and that's why that's why social media is so cool as well, because it's one of the huge pluses of social media. It's just like you, you just you're exposed to an idea or like you put an idea out there and now 100,000 people are like looking at that and being like, mm, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's like and suddenly who really knows where something came, comes from, blah, blah, blah. And now it's just like a bit better than it was. And it just keeps going that direction. So like they did. They did great things. The, my problem with some of those systems is when they keep 
doubling down on what they're saying. That's I know, and I know your question isn't around the system necessarily; it's around the pain. But like, yeah, they keep doubling down. Like, I think Stuart McGill maybe is one there that like probably did great work for his time, but now is still like just hanging on, clinging on to some of the bad narratives that he has been using in the past. Maybe because usually it's just either ego or financial gain and it's probably a little bit of both but like we have moved on from a lot of those narratives and he hasn't so i wouldn't shit on like what you were doing in the past but i would say like what you're doing now isn't very good and you're still not admitting it you're just hanging on to the past so yeah that's that's one thing i would say there and then yeah with the pain stuff they they just didn't know we did like my i always think about i'm i'm trying to be careful not to be shitting on people because if I think in like 10 years, if I listen to my podcast in Tim in 10 years time, I'm probably going to be like, what the fuck was I saying? I will be shitting on myself. Like, never mind what other people are going to be saying. So like, yeah, we're just learning. Imagine what we're going to know, hopefully in 10 years. time. Think about how quickly this industry has moved in 10 years, in a 20, 10, 20 years. It's changed a lot. And people don't seem to appreciate that. They look at change and they say, oh, well, look, we were doing this this exercise back then. The Russians were doing this exercise 70 years ago. So nothing has changed. Well, sorry, the clinical reasoning, the narratives, the understanding of the biopsychosocial model has has been huge gone through huge changes and it's come to the masses now not just like one person doing something in the corner so we've improved massively and with pain we have made huge improvements so i I get frustrated with the pain science and stuff the interpretation of it again but it is the most important thing that's happening in the industry right now which is helping people understand this is relatively normal what's what's occurring and don't freak out. Those kind of things are really, really important. We can continue to train. We can, we we will oscillate up and down. There is no point where you're just like in this utopia of pain-free, perfect movement. It just doesn't exist. So why torture yourself about it? Or, or if it does, it's transient and like enjoy it while it does, but don't have that be the expectation. Like, Michelle and I talked about this back in episode one, but um, I know you're probably in the same boat where it's like 25% of my caseload is physical therapists or strength coaches because um, that's who tends to consume my content or know who I am or, or whatever. But I, there is there's a big problem with um, people in those roles almost feeling this shame about uh, you know about their pain it's like it's like if i know so much then why can't i solve this thing and just giving them another framework of you know look, look pain is just a signal that your body is sending like you it's just information it doesn't mean that you're a successful or unsuccessful rehab or fitness professional um and that's i mean to me that feels the same as that conversation that you had with kate of yeah, when, when you do your sport, your hip might hurt a bit and, and we can get you back from there and it's okay. The expectation is that it it will happen again. Yeah, I would just say one thing there, Tim, with that is they are feeling shame and potentially they shouldn't, but potentially they should because some of these people, because I get a lot of these people as well, some of these people are selling online a pain-free dream to clients pov you did this one exercise and your pain went away forever they are doing those posts and guess what they feel like absolute dog shit so they should feel shame because they are actually being a massive imposter there now i'm not saying any coach or therapist with pain is being an imposter of course not but actually a lot of people are selling this dream of people but they they're not even experiencing it themselves they haven't they couldn't be further from the truth and i would liken that to like young people uh, on tiktok that are putting up pictures of themselves and photoshopping it and they're photoshopping like look at me look at the shape you can get in if you just work out three days a week and you can still go and eat whatever you want and drink and this is a 10-week transformation it's a lie and there's a lot of lies being told online as well around this exercise will make you pain free or look at this shoulder before and after if we did like some simple shoulder movement. Now there's now you have 30 degrees more range of motion. Who gives a shit? What does it look like tomorrow? That's what I want to know. Like, yes, 
you know, like it's nice to sh- show people that the body can change, but it's sending out the wrong message all of the time. If I put up a before and after of someone whose hip has improved 30 degrees in five minutes, it's to show people that it's capable of change. Not that it's like it's changed and now it's fixed. That is a shit message. People that are putting out that should feel shame. And they are doing the same as like, yeah, I'm taking performance enhancing drugs and then telling people that this program and this diet will will make you look like this. It's the same fucking thing. Yeah, it's probably a conversation around like uh, short term versus long term bearing there, right? It's like a really good way to grow a following very quickly is to do something that seems to have dramatic results or like dramatic aesthetics in the case of like an Instagram influencer. But yeah. and this is, you know, I, I, I think this is why I've enjoyed following your path for the, for the past five or six years is because you readily will admit that you don't know. Like I've heard you say, I don't know plenty of times. I'm not sure plenty of times. Um, and your path has kind of rung with with authenticity. And, you know, not to make this too much of a personal therapy session, but if you look at my Instagram content from like 2017 or 2018, or even like season one of this podcast, a lot of it was still wrapped into this, like, I'm really good at running fast thing, or I'm really good at lifting heavy if you go back far enough. And it's like, well, now I'm not. And, you know, to, to continue to propagate that brand of work with me, because look at what I can do. Um, it felt, you know, like emotionally and intellectually dishonest. And yeah. I sort of realized, like, going further and further in this direction, there's actually a lot more long term power here. It's like you, you want to be coached by someone that has walked a similar path, um, and is maybe just a couple steps ahead of you. And I think for, you know, the physical therapist or the coach that hasn't dealt with some of this stuff, not that I would like wish it on anybody, um, but there's just, there's so much more power in just kind of like owning your shit, owning what you know, uh, saying that you don't know everything, saying that it's a continual work in progress. Because it it is, even if you're like a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, if you're like a 60-year-old orthopedic surgeon, you want to work with the surgeon that's still trying to get better into his 60s you don't want to work with someone that has claimed to have figured it all out 20 years ago yeah exactly so it's 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 it is an interesting thing because you you can talk to a coach or a therapist and they will have a often have a persona of and some people would claim that i would i do as well and there's obviously ego involved but like yeah, I kind of know everything like i'm putting out like this is the answer i know everything but then if you ask someone do you think you're going to be a better coach in a year's time than now? Most of them will hopefully say, yeah, I will be. So it's like, okay, but you think you know everything now and you also think that you're going to be better than you will be in a year's time. So like, where is the, do you think that potentially you could have changed your mind about something in a year's time? Yeah. So why does it mean that it's not potentially the thing that we're talking about right now? So like, yeah, I always think that way. What will I will I've changed my mind? Two or three years ago, I'm a very different coach than I was then. Very, very different coach than I was then. I would say much better coach, far better coach than I was then. And I think I was doing a really good job then. I look back and still think I was doing a good job, but I'm so, so much better. And I think I can actually remember a day thinking, probably three or four years ago, I can remember a day thinking. This is getting a bit boring, this coaching thing, because I think I pretty much know everything. I can remember having that conversation in my own head. And like, not that I'm the best coach in the world that I was thinking then, but I was like, like all the systems that are there to be discovered, all the stuff that kind of is to know in the in the world of training. I kind of know it. I can remember thinking that now, like I would never have that thought again. I would slap myself because Every six months, I look back and I'm much better. And it's just because I'm on the lookout for... Actually, it's just because I'm working with people. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you just learn a shit ton working with people. I mean, it's well, it's stand-up comedy. Like, we need, like, we cannot sit in rooms and think about movement and have that be all we do. Like, you in, in comedy, you need an audience. You, you need that interaction. And it's like, we need to be in the lab, at, at least me, like... To some extent, it might not be what I do 40 hours a week, but like a couple days a week, I need to be in the movement lab, observing the movement system, interacting with people. It is the thing that keeps me like grounded to human existence, but also grounded in, in my professional existence. I know we are slightly over time. 
Um, but any any kind of closing thoughts on? I, I think we sort of tangentially hit a lot of the things that I did want to discuss, and I always kind of enjoy the free flowing nature of our conversations, anyhow. But um, any other kind of summative thoughts or, or areas that we did not touch upon? Um, no, just one kind of came to mind, which is I don't know who who is is it more coaches and therapists listening to this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think. So I get asked a lot around, you know, okay, I have some kind of fusion in 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 my spine or in my foot or arthritis. I know I mentioned that or something like, okay, I've actually lost movement potential here completely. And I think just one thing I would like to say is because we all probably get confronted with this and we spoke, we did speak about it earlier where people ask like, am I ever going to get this back or like, you know, this is kind of fucked, this area. And like, we're being honest with ourselves. Like, it is kind of fucked, let's be honest. And what's the right answer to tell these people? Because you don't want to lie to them. And also, you don't want to take away hope. So like, what's the right answer? So kind of found a way to answer it in a roundabout way, which is, I don't know. And I mentioned this already, which is like, I don't know, but I know it can be probably better than it is now. And let's just bring as much of the surrounding areas back to life as we can. So like you have a fusion in this big toe. Okay, but look at all the rest of your foot. There's so many joints here that don't move and they're not fused. So what like, is there any reason for that except for you've just started to avoid all this motion? So let's just bring the whole area back to life as much as we can and let's worry about the things that we can do and i think that's a nice way to frame it to those people and i just yeah i just want because i've had that conversation so many times online recently with people and i do think that's an important you don't have to say it in that way you don't even have to say it the way i'm saying it or anything like that but it does give people a lot of hope it just switches the mindset away from like where i'm limited to like yeah, let's bring it all back to life and see what happens. Yeah, I, I like that. I think, you know, for me, like doubling down on the process, because it's difficult, someone comes to work with you, and they might not have had pain, like they all they were doing was just playing their sport, love and life. And now it's like, okay, in addition to modifying how you're playing your sport, I'm going to ask you to do 10 minutes a day mobility stuff. And I'm going to educate you that going forward, you might never be pain free again. And it's like, that is a bitter pill to swallow. But what I found in my clients that are most successful walking this path is they they can just be okay with that process of like, yep, something might hurt most days. Yep, I'm going to have to do some mobility work. Yep, I'm going to have to make concessions to my training. But when you compare that to the alternative of I'm going to stop, it's like, no. And and this is, we talked about trade-offs. It's like, I think what we do is largely trade-off management. So it's like, if you can give me time, attention, effort, energy, I can probably give you less symptoms and more movement, um, even though it might not ever be 100% where you want it to be. Yeah, I think expectation, understanding two columns, like expectation in one column and reality in the other column, the further apart they are, the more unhappy you're going to get. And it's, uh, and we all fall into this trap as well of someone coming to you and they will ask like how quickly will I be fixed here and yeah mate like absolutely this pain is probably going away but we always err on the side of like I I think I think we can sort this out pretty quick or I think it'll take like if you had a new physio they would and someone was saying like do you think we can sort this in four sessions when in reality in their mind they might be thinking like 10 sessions okay, I'm going to need a good bit of time to clean up this issue. Like usually they'll still like kind of pander to the client and say, yeah, we'll sort it in a few weeks. You'll be good. And so now their expectation, like now they're, that client is leaving the, the room or the office like pretty happy. But that's a very short-term happiness because now in a couple of weeks when it's not getting any better, they're getting very frustrated. So you've you've taken a short-term kind of view to to give yourself an easy out but you've you've flipped the their expectation and the reality are not meeting each other at all now so exactly what you're saying i think like with someone like kate like her expectation now and her reality are as close together as we can get them which is 
your hip isn't in great shape, I think it can be better. There's going to be days where you're sore. There's going to be days where you're not. For the most part, we're trying to nudge you in this direction and we will get you there. We'll continue to nudge you forward. But there's going to be bumps in the road. Like So she fully expects all of those things. And that is also her reality. So, yeah, I think matching expectation reality, that is the that is the key. Always with a view of being like on the side of positive rather than negative. So like slight smidge positive because that could skew their reality in a good way as well. So a small sprinkle of placebo rather than nocebo is going to be a good thing. That is uh, as good of a point to end on as any. Um Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Uh, kind of uh, knew this would be a productive, productive conversation, just given your background, given what you tend to think about, and uh, very much looking forward to having you back on for whatever topic we pick for season four. Thank you, Tim. You're the man. I love you. And um, I think you're always doing great work. Super open-minded, always open to chat and stuff. So I really appreciate everything you do. I know I ramble all over the place there, but hopefully like at least one person finds it valuable. Oh, really, really, really quick, just before we sign off, um, I, I'll do a little plug. I mean, I think that uh, for those that are listening that aren't familiar with David Gray, uh, your three kind of foundational products, like lower body basics, core basics, upper body basics, in my opinion, should probably be the first semester of PT school in America. Um, I recommend and, and the foot program. And and the, the ankle foot program, which I, I have had, I've had clients have, uh, yeah, very very impressive results with. So, uh, anything else, DGR Interactive, like anything else that you want to plug? Uh no, no, you've done it, man. Thank you. All right, thanks again. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.